Welcome. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Jonathan Blanks. I'm a research associate in the Cato's Project on Criminal Justice and managing editor of our website, policemisconduct.net. Uh, before we get started, uh, make sure you have your ringers on your cell phones turned off. However, if uh, you would like to tweet about the event, you can do so at hashtag Cato locked in. Uh, see a few friends in the room tonight, uh, many of whom work in criminal justice, some on the left, some on the right, some libertarians, of course. Um, and we all approach the issue of, drug, of uh, criminal justice reform from different angles. Uh, some want to look at drug law liberalization, others look at collateral consequences to arrest and, and incarceration, and others think about reentry programs. But our main focus is always on addressing the impacts of what has been called mass incarceration. As many of you know, uh, even though the United States has 5% of the world's population, we house nearly a quarter of its prisoners. And in the work that we do in criminal justice reform, we all work with some guiding assumptions, um, particularly now that we're in the, because we're in the nation's capital, it makes sense that we concentrate on federal laws and try to influence federal lawmakers. But a lot of times we also start looking at the strategies to where we can make the most impact. And a lot of times it comes on to these low-hanging fruit known as uh, nonviolent drug offenders. And uh, particularly for uh, our allies on the, on the left, they would like to eliminate uh, private prisons. Well, today we're here to talk about John Pfaff's new book, Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration, How to Achieve Real Reform, where he challenges a lot of these assumptions and strategies that many reformers in this room use. Um, there's a lot of packed into this, into this book. It's not particularly thick. It's 235 pages plus notes. Uh, but there is a lot of data in here. Um, that said, uh, just because we have a Harvard economist here does not mean you have to have a PhD to understand it. It's very easy to use, very acceptable, and I highly recommend it. But one of the things he, uh, one of the things that John does is challenges the way we think about crime and punishment, and also like how we think about violent crime and violent criminals. And he, he backs this up with a good amount of data, which is something that I think is very often lacking in these debates because we have so many like, well, you know, you can't, you can't do the time, don't do the crime, and all that sort of rhetoric. But um, I highly recommend the book, and John will be, uh, has been kind enough to say that he will sign some after, uh, after the event. Um, but before I turn it over, I wanted to read an excerpt of uh, a speech that uh, is part of a theme that runs throughout John's book, uh, although the speech is not recent. It was uh, made in 1940 by future Supreme Court Justice and then uh, Attorney General of the United States, Robert Jackson. He, he wrote, uh, excuse me, he spoke to uh, federal prosecutors, and uh, this is what he said. The prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. His discretion is tremendous. He, he can have citizens investigated, and if he is that kind of person, he can have this done to the tone of public statements or veiled or unveiled intimations. The prosecutor can order arrests, present cases to a grand jury in secret session, and on the base of his one-sided presentation of the facts, can cause the citizen to be indicted and held for trial. He may dismiss the case before trial, in which case the defense never has a chance to be heard. If he obtains a conviction, the prosecutor can still make recommendations as, uh, as to whether the prisoner should get probation or a suspended sentence. 
While the prosecutor is at his best one of the most beneficent forces in our society, when he acts from malice or other base motives, he is one of the worst. Now this is not to say that, nor does John argue in his book at all, that our mass incarceration problem comes from a, a wave of malicious prosecutors, far from it. But it is important to understand that the inputs and incentives that face prosecutors and the actions that they take because of those have profound consequences given their unique position and power within our criminal justice systems. Um, I will now introduce both of our speakers uh, at, at the same time. John will have about 35 minutes to give his presentation and uh, Jeff will have 20 to 25 minutes for comments. After that, John will have a chance to respond and then we'll open it up for Q&A before we retire to uh, reception upstairs. Uh, John Pfaff is professor, professor of law at Fordham University, where he teaches criminal law, sentencing law, and law and economics. Before coming to Fordham, he was the John M. Olin Fellow at the Northwestern University School of Law and clerked for uh, Judge Stephen F. Williams on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Professor Pfaff's research focuses primarily on empirical matters related to criminal justice, especially criminal sentencing. He has paid particular attention uh, to trying to understand the causes of the unprecedented 40-year boom in U.S. incarceration rates. His work has illuminated the previously underappreciated role that prosecutorial discretion has played in driving up our prison populations. He earned his uh, BA, JD, and PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. And to my left, we have Professor Jeffrey Myron, who is Director of Economic Studies here at the Cato Institute, as Director of Undergraduate Studies, uh, undergraduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. His studies have a particular emphasis on the economics of illegal drugs. Byron has served on the faculty of the University of Michigan and as a visiting professor at the Sloan School of Manage Management, MIT, and the Department of Economics at Harvard University. From 1992 to 1998, he was chairman of the Department of Economics at Boston University. He's the author of Drug War Crimes, The Consequences of Prohibition, and The Economics of Seasonal Cycles, in addition to numerous op-eds and journal articles. Byron's received his BA magna cum laude from Swarthmore and a PhD in economics from MIT. And now it is my pleasure to welcome back to Cato, Professor John Pfaff. Thank you everyone for coming. Um, so I'll just jump right into it. What we're here to talk about is the rise of incarceration uh, in the United States and how to try to rein it back in. For a long time, this would have been a very boring topic to talk about. For about the first, from 1925, when we first had good data, through 1970 or so, our incarceration rate was a fairly stable 100 per 100,000. It didn't go up that much, go down that much. In fact, it was so stable that it was arguably the worst time paper ever published in academia. One of criminology's leading lights, Alfred Blumstein, wrote a paper published in 1979 saying that the US incarceration rate would never rise above 100 per 100,000, because if it did, we would adjust all of our laws to push it back down to keep it at around 100 per 100,000. No. Over the next 40 years, it rose to heights unseen in American history and unseen worldwide. Uh, there is technically, basically speaking, no country with an incarceration as high as ours. Technically speaking, Seychelles has more, a higher incarceration rate, but they have a population of 99,000, a prison population of like 600, right? So excluding them, the only countries close to us are Russia, Kazakhstan, and Cuba. Uh, European countries like France and Germany have a rate of about 100 100,000 compared to ours of about 700 um, in terms of prison and jail, 500 uh, just for prisons. Uh, the highest incarceration rate in Western Europe is England at around 250. No one comes close to us. Now, since 2010, there's been a little bit of a drop. Not much, but it's something. And reformers point to this drop as signs of something perhaps to be hopeful for. 
right, that maybe at long last we are turning this process around. But there are reasons to be very concerned about what we're actually seeing. We talk about how crime has, prison has declined in the United States since 2010. That's not entirely true. Prison has declined in California since 2010. If we break down declines by state, here's what we see. You can guess where California is. States in great, 24 other states have shrunk, 25 states have seen their populations go up. All told, there are about 1.4 million people in prison in 2010. The total decline between 2010 and 2015 was about 77,000, or 5.5%. If you take California alone out of that equation, it falls in more than half to 11,000, sorry, 35,000, or about 2.5%. If you take the top five states out of the picture, the decline is less than 1%. This is not a national decline. This is a very specific localized decline. And within most of those states, it's not even statewide, it's county specific. So why? What is happening here? Why are we not seeing bigger returns? Because to be honest, in an era where Democrats and Republicans can't even agree if it's cloudy or sunny outside today, the one place where they actually have remarkable agreement at, at the state and county and local level, if not so much at the federal level, is when it comes to prison reform. So despite being one of the few true bipartisan issues in politics today, we're not seeing much for all the effort and energy and time that's gone in. And the reason I think this is so because there are sort of three who's that we're ignoring. We're ignoring the prosecutor, who drives everything lately, but gets almost no attention. And my favorite example of this, this shows just how clear this is, is that when Hillary Clinton rolled out her end-to-end -end criminal justice reform plan in 2016, she talked about policing and she talked about parole. It wasn't end-to-end. -end. It was end-and-end. And the middle got ignored. And that's not to bash her. She does it like everyone else. Well, to be fair, the ACLU today announced they're going to start going after prosecutors in terms of reform efforts. That's great, but this is where we are. We are just starting to talk about prosecutors now. The second who we ignore is the person convicted of violence, who gets cut out of every single reform. They're almost always ineligible for whatever changes we make, despite the fact that over half of all people in prison are there for a violent crime. If you want to cut prisons by any sizable amount, at some point, we have to have a discussion about how we punish people convicted of violence. It's inescapable. The third who we ignore maybe not so much here, but more or less everywhere else, is the public sector union. Here, maybe you guys talk about them a little bit more, right? We focus on private prisons. They don't really matter at all, but the public sector unions, they're profoundly powerful and almost completely off any sort of reform effort radar. And until we address all three of these groups and really change our focus, I think we're going to continue to be disappointed in what we see. So I want to go through each of these stories in turn. Start with the prosecutor. So my study of prosecutors is from 1994 to 2008. The weird starting year is just a matter of the data. This is when the data start, 1994. But it actually worked out kind of well because crime started dropping in 1991. So what I'm looking at is why did prison populations keep going up even as crime fell? There's a different story, I think, for what happened between 1974 and 1991 as prisons and crime went up together. That's one story. That's one causal mechanism. There's no reason to assume the same stories hold. But why do we keep increasing prison populations at pretty much the same steady, unrelenting rate, even as violent crimes, serious violent crime dropped by 25% and serious property crime dropped by 25%? So here's what we see. Crime, like I just said, during this period is down. Also down during this period is arrests. We're arresting fewer people. Our clearance rate's not going up. There are fewer people entering the criminal justice system as a whole. We have fewer crimes, fewer arrests, fewer people entering the system. Yet, as we arrest fewer people, as fewer people come into contact, the number of felony cases filed in state court rises sharply. It almost doubles. Fewer and fewer people entering the system, more and more felony charges being filed. 
Once that charge is filed, the probability that you go to prison doesn't change. About one in four felony cases goes to prison in 1994. About one in four felony cases goes to prison in 2008. Contrary to the story you hear all the time, once you go to prison, the amount of time you spend in prison doesn't change either during this time. And it's not nearly as long as you think it is. I asked a bunch of undergrads at a very good school the other day, how long do you think the median person convicted of violence spends in prison? And their answers range from about 10 years to 40 years. It's four years is the median time for violence. For drugs and property, it's one. Do you know why we hear about Weldon Angelos? Because he is the man biting the dog, not the dog biting the man. Right? Most cases are very, very short. There's no evidence that there's been any growth in those times served. Admittedly, if those times were shorter, our population would be smaller. And these times are longer than we see in Europe. It's not irrelevant. But to explain the growth, there hasn't been a change in the amount of time actually being served. The only thing that's changed are felony filings. And those are completely within the hands of the prosecutor. They are the ones driving this process, yet we don't talk about them at all. So why? Why have prosecutors become tougher? Simple answer is I don't have a clue. And I don't have a clue because I have no data. We have data on crimes. We have data on police. We have data on prisons. We have data on parole. When it comes to the prosecutor, nothing. Just nothing. But there are bits and pieces here and there we can pull from various random things that at least tell some possible set of stories. So here are some ideas. Some suggest easy solutions, some don't. So the first one I want to point out is crippled public defense. We spend $200 billion a year on criminal justice. We spend $4.5 billion a year on Indian defense. 80% of all people facing prison qualify for a public defender. We spend less on Indian defense than we do on prosecutors. And once you account for the fact that prosecutors get their investigators for free, their investigators are called the police department and the sheriff's office, while public defenders have to pay for their investigators, the budget imbalance triples. They're overwhelmed and completely non-adversarial at this point. Simply funding public defenders so they can actually do their jobs, I think it would make a huge difference. In fact, Jonathan Rapping, the head of Gideon's Promises, argued that no reform matters unless you fund public defense. Because it doesn't matter if the law changes, if the defendant has no idea that it's changing. Right? And the public defender can't stop and read a case file. It doesn't matter if the case is stronger or weaker based on some other legal change. Right? It's an easy fix, but no one has the courage to do it. New York State, a very blue state, just had a bipartisan bill passed to fund Indian defense in response to a settlement with the ACLU that was sponsored by the Democrats and the conservatives in the, in the legislature that can't agree, again, on even what day of the week it is. Yet Cuomo, a Democrat, vetoed it at the 11th hour in a way that couldn't be reversed. He waited for the session to end, and then he vetoed it. Jay Nixon, Democrat in Missouri, got a bill increasing Indian defense funding in Missouri. He didn't just line item veto it. He line item vetoed it and then cut Indian defense budget by the exact amount the legislator had raised it, right? There's no bigger middle finger a Democrat can give the Indian defense than that, than to cut it by the raise, right? We hate this, but it's essential. Tougher sentencing laws. Now, I just said that people aren't spending more time in prison, and that's true. But our sentencing laws have gotten tougher. So it's possible that the way it works isn't that people are spending more time in prison. But 95% of all cases end in a plea bargain. Prosecutors walk into, a, into that small, dank cell now. Instead, with a knife, they've got a shotgun. So if a shotgun, they've got a bomb, right? Take this five-year deal or get eight years. Take this five-year deal or get 15. Take this five-year deal or get 30. Right? Of course, you're going to plead out faster and allows them to process more cases because their threats are more credible, even if the actual time they impose isn't larger. And there's plenty of evidence that DAs actually don't want to impose more time, but they're happy to use, perhaps happy to use that threat to, to get it. So perhaps cutting sentences might help not through time served, but plea bargaining power. But again, we have no idea, no idea how plea bargaining actually operates. It's an entirely empirical black box to us. So maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, I just don't know. 
Perhaps the most powerful explanation, which has a simple fix, but perhaps a politically challenging one, is simply a story of staffing. There's a fascinating trend in the way in which you staffed DA offices. Between 1974 and 1990, as crime goes up dramatically, we hire 3,000 more ADAs, from 17,000 to 20,000. Between 1990 and 2008, as crime drops, we hire 10,000 more ADAs, from 20,000 to 30,000. There's no evidence that I can find based on the rough measures of DA productivity that I have, that individual DAs are any more aggressive today than they were 20 years ago. But we have 10,000 more of them and less crime. Of course, but the catch is we have less crime, but we arrest 12 million people a year. There's always gonna be more crime for that ADA to get into, right? He has to justify his job. He can't play minesweeper all day long. We've got enough arrest room to do something and we simply have too many of them, right? Maybe we just need fewer prosecutors. That's the urban story. The rural story is much different. Between 1972 and, 19, and 2008, the number of counties with a full-time DA went from 45% to 85%. So the urban counties staffed up, and the rural counties professionalized. Right? Before, you were a part-timer. You had your law firm on the side, and you prosecuted on the side. Now, in almost every county in America, you are the prosecutor. This is your job. This is who you are. This is how you pay your bills, is prosecuting. Right? And so obviously, your incentives are going to shift. And I did those backwards from the slides, so apologize for that. These suggest easy solutions, but some of them are hard. Perhaps the hardest one is just us. Right? Like Pogo said, I've seen the enemy, and he is us. Right? Americans consistently say we favor rehabilitation over punitiveness, yet DAs are constantly more punitive. And so some academics say, if we could just teach the DAs what the people think, they'll change their behavior. Wrong. They know us. Right? They win election after election because they understand who we are. And who we are are people who say, I don't want things to be tough, and then complain about that one bad case. Right? We all know about Willie Horton. I think it's time to retire Willie Horton and focus on Daryl Dennis. Right. No one's heard of Daryl Dennis, but Daryl Dennis was a prolee in Arkansas. Arkansas passed a reform law in 2011. Their prison population fell by 7% immediately after this reform was passed. It was working. Daryl Dennis gets paroled, single parolee, single murder on parole, and the next year their population is up by 10%. Right. Because parole shut down, completely shut down, because one parolee committed one murder and every parole officer is terrified for their job. We say we want rehabilitation and restorative justice and non-punitive tactics. When we get into the voting booth, we're going to focus on the Daryl Dennis's and not the broader success. I shocked someone by pointing out that in the Willie Horton case, that program that allowed Willie Horton out, and then he went off and committed a horrible rape in the 1980s, it had a success rate of 99.9%. Everyone came back. One guy didn't. Does anyone know that? No, we all know Willie Horton. Right? You know the one guy who didn't. We don't know about the thousands of people who actually came back with no problem at all. And the program, its electoral impact is overstated, but its message was not. Now here's the interesting thing about DAs. On the one hand, I'm saying, look, DAs drive this. That's kind of a terrifying story because there's 2,500 DA offices in America, right? It's a very localized procedure, process. And in fact, you want to talk about prison growth. We talk about state prisons. Why is Tennessee different from New York? That's the exact wrong way to think about it. New York State is decarcerated. We've shed 25,000 prisoners since 1999. But the fact of the matter is New York State did not decarcerate. New York City decarcerated. And the rest of the state sent more people to prison than before. If you look at this map, this next map is every county in America. The orange states had fewer prisoners in 2000, counties had fewer prisoners in 2014 than they did in 2010. The blue states had more people in prison in 2014 than in 2010. And with the exception of sort of California and Mississippi and maybe Vermont, New Hampshire, I mean, you cannot identify state lines on this map. Many of these states decarcerated, many of these states had higher prison populations, but you can't really see it, right? Because it's county by county. So on the one hand, you got to go county by county. There's not going to be a federal fix. There's not going to be a state fix. Right? It's going to be a county fix. Now, two good lessons from that. One, 60% of all cases take place in 10% of the counties where the people are. 
not a lot of people in most of America. So you don't need to fix all 2,500 counties. Get 250 and you're well along your way. B, prison reformers, police reformers are terrified right now. They basically view the next four years, eight years as a lost cause. As a prison reformer, I'm optimistic. Federalism here is a shield against sort of the carnage in America rhetoric coming out of the White House. Right? These are local DAs. And there's evidence that DAs don't even care what the governor says. They certainly don't care what the president says. And so it makes the job harder in terms of county by county. It shields us because there's nothing that DC is going to do that's going to get all 2,500 of these guys on the same page. Right? More work, but it's protective. But it's a DA, and we're just not talking about the DAs at this point. So that's problem number one. It's DAs admitting people, not legislators imposing long sentences. I mean, long sentences matter, but not nearly the extent we think they do. So the next obvious explanation, well, it's just a war on drugs. So you immediately hear. In fact, for, for, for a while, this is a running joke between my wife and me. Anytime I went to a party and said, I studied prison growth, the immediate response is like a sad, oh, you poor academic, it's just the war on drugs. Like I hadn't heard of this, right? Like 10 years into my career, I was like, wait, 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 the war on, how do you spell that, that last word so I can, I can go look this up? Um, then it stopped being funny and just became annoying. Um, so here's the fact. Between 1980 and 1990, the number of people in prison, percent of people in prison for drugs rose sharply to about 22%. And since 1990, that percent has dropped all the way down to 16%. 16% of people are in state prison for drugs. 50% are in prison in the federal system for drugs, but the feds are just 10% of the system, 99% of our discussion. Right? especially when it comes to drugs. And the Weldon Angeles of the world, those only happen in the federal system. The states almost never do that. Louisiana sometimes goes a little crazy, but the other 49 don't do that. It's not drugs, it's violence. Here are the simple numbers. Between 1980 and 2009, we added 1.1 million people to prison, from 300,000 to 1.4 million. 223,000, or 21% of those are for drug offenses. 551,000, or 51% of those are for violence. And as it stands today, 53% of all state prisoners has at their most important charge is a violent crime. Yes, if we were to release the 250,000 people in prison for drugs, that would be great. They shouldn't be there. And I'm not arguing that this had no impact at all. But that still would leave over 1.1 million people in prison. Right? It, would, it would still leave 84% of the people are still going to be there. It's not going to have the impact we're going to have. But in fact, it's a little bit trickier than that to start with. Now, the immediate response I get when I say this, and this is a fair criticism to raise, I get two criticisms, one from the left and one from the right, by saying we need to focus on violent offenders and change the way we punish violent crimes. From the left, simply this, I'm undercounting the war on drugs. What about the guy who steals from a store to pay for his drug habit because drugs are more expensive. That's a property crime, not a drug crime, but that's tied to prohibition. What about the kid who shoots another kid in the corner of a drug deal gone bad? That's a violent crime, not a drug crime, but it's tied to prohibition. Fair point, but it doesn't prove as much as we think it does. First of all, who's in prison for drugs? Regardless of what they plead to, most people in prison for drugs are there for trafficking. And yes, trafficking can be a very low amount of weight. But when you actually do surveys asking prisoners, what actually did you have in your possession? They are not the low level people and they're not the super traffickers. They're in the middle. It's more than personal use, but they're not exactly Pablo Escobar moving a you know, rail car full of heroin through the country either, right? They're in the middle, towards the lower end, but not on the personal use end. Why? Why are they selling drugs? They're selling drugs because they can't do something else. 
right? No one volunteers to be a drug trafficker or a drug dealer, right? It's because they're cut off from the primary sector employment options, right? They can't get the job because their schools are underfunded, because their, their, their social network is cut off from the networks we all use to get jobs. You like to think we all got our jobs because I just applied, like, you know, the open market and set my resume out and I got a job, but that's crazy, right? We all got our jobs through social networks, right? And so if you are systematically cut off from that network, you can't get those jobs. Your schools don't prepare you for those jobs. Your neighbor is underinvested in, underfunded, not, and that's before you even get to the giant racial barriers that exist in place. So if the drugs get legalized, if you can buy everything you need at your local, local corner drug dispensary, the people selling drugs now aren't going to turn to legal employment because that's why they're selling drugs in the first place. Those legal jobs aren't there. They're going to turn to something else illegal. And we see this in New York City. Gangs that sell drugs in New York City are actually shifting away from drugs as that economy shifts and moving to identity theft, right? Not Google, but identity theft, right? Because they don't have access to the legal jobs. Right? So drug arrests and incarceration go down, but property crimes are going to go up because we haven't solved the underlying economic reason they're in prison for the drug problem in the first place. Right? How about the violence? So Julie Yovi has a great book called Ghetto Side. And in the book, she makes this point that across time and across place, if young men are denied upward mobility and the state renounces its monopoly on violence, they will themselves will turn to violence and, and, and lethal behavior. It was true in Saras, Russia. It's true in South Central Los Angeles. South Central LA, obviously young black men are denied upward economic mobility, right? It's just, it's the, the barriers there are staggering. And also think about murder. The clearance rate in LA County, what fraction of murders end in arrest in LA County is 60%, but for black men is 30%. Two thirds of all murders of a black man do not result in arrest. The state has completely renounced its monopoly on violence when it comes to black men in Los Angeles. If we take drugs out of the picture, they'll, the, the violence will persist just with different causes. Don't oversell that. There was a distinct spike in murder from 84 to 91 tied to the instability brought on by crack. I'm not saying this is entirely the story, but a significant portion of the violence isn't caused by drugs. It's that drugs came to where the violence was in the first place, and the violence was there for structural reasons that legalizing drugs alone won't begin to address. Right? And so the gains you're going to get from reduced violence and, and, and reduced um, trafficking are going to shift in ways that are incredibly complicated. Not to mention cheaper drugs lead to more use, more abuse. People will lose their jobs resulting in that. The actual dynamics are very, very complicated. But the overall impact is probably much less than reformers think, is however valid that reform is. And I favor legalization for, for most drugs, um, but think the impact is less than we hope for. From the right, you get the obvious response. Well, yeah, this is great, right? These are people we want in prison. Lock them up. This is what we should be doing. Except, yes, violence imposes huge costs. But prison is not exactly always the best way to solve it. There's no evidence that long sentences deter, no evidence that longer sentences deter either. So we're not gaining much deterrence for these long sentences we threaten people with or, or impose. We also tend to over-incarcerate. We use this term violent offender. And I think it's term we should completely cut out of our vocabulary because it's, it's fundamentally misleading. People are not violence, calling someone a violent offender suggests that this is who they are, that violence is a state. You are a violent person, but that's wrong. Violence is a phase, not a state. You age into and age out of violence. And we start to appreciate the aging in part. Right? You see the juvenile death penalty, juvenile life without parole, this idea that young people change over the course of their youth and their behavior shifts. We understand that. What we don't understand nearly as well, or at least we understand but don't incorporate into our political debates as well, is that you age out of violence as well. 20s, 30s, 40s, you start becoming a less violent person. Right? Hormones shift. Testosterone levels drop. Other levels go up. There are behavioral things. You're married. You have a job. That keeps you away from your stupid friends who get you doing stupid stuff that leads to bad behavior, right? You're just older, right? I'm 41. Things ache and creak in a way they didn't 10 years ago. Like, I'm not going to get in a fight now that I might have 20 years ago because I'm going to lose, right? I'm just, however slow I was back then, I'm slower now, right? I was slow back then, so it was a bad idea even in my 20s, but it's a far worse idea now, right? 
And so this reliance on incarceration is not exactly always the right way to go. Right? There are other smarter approaches that we could take. And we tend to over, we tend not to get the deterrence we think. And the irony is the fact that by the time we hit people that third strike, that really long sentence, we find, all right, we're determined you are finally the person that we are scared to have to lock up. That is right as that person is about to start aging out of crime. Unfortunately, we can't predict when they're younger who's going to keep offending long, later in life. Right? So we can't lock them up for a long time when they're young because we can't predict who to lock up. And by the time we know who to lock up, that's about the time we don't need to lock them up anymore. Right? But there's even a deeper issue here. When we talk about the cost of violence and the cost of violent crime, the comparison we always make is the cost of incarceration, right? the cost, standard cost-benefit analysis. But what are those? We talk about the cost of crime, and then we talk about the $35,000 per year it costs us to house someone in prison. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of the social cost of incarceration. Going to prison cuts lifetime earnings. It cuts wages, cuts hours worked. Prison is an incredible vector of STD, HIV, and tuberculosis. Going to prison significantly increases the risk of dying from a drug overdose within the first three weeks upon release, because the drugs in prison are of a lower quality and more expensive, so you use less, and your tolerance falls, but doesn't go away. Upon release, drugs are purer and cheaper, and so you, you forget that your tolerance is lower and you die of an overdose that we don't attribute to the prison. It increases the risk of children themselves ending up in prison, because the single parent who's a situation, the father, oftentimes the father being the one in prison. Incredible social costs, stigma costs. In New York State, Half of our maximum security prisons are more than 200 miles away from New York City, despite the fact that half our prisoners come from New York City. Think about the transportation costs, the job costs, the stress costs, the family hasslement costs. Think about the cost of the collect calls you have to make that can nearly bankrupt the family uh, that we actually started to roll back. Right now we're bringing all those high collected costs back in. We haven't begun to calculate these costs. We compare the cost of crime to the smallest part of the cost. And simply say these other costs are so hard to calculate, we're just going to ignore them. Right? But they're huge. And we've never really had a really honest discussion about what that true optimal level of crime is when you account for the fact that the cure has huge costs too. Right? We don't take cancer patients and just drop them into Chernobyl. Right? We calibrate the radiation to fit the disease because too much radiation will kill the person. That's kind of our attitude towards prison. Whatever it takes, hit them with it. Right? But that might have profound social costs we have not yet begun to ignore. And this ties into the important racial geography of punishment and brings us back to the prosecutor. Who chooses the prosecutor? We elect the prosecutor at the county level. For urban counties, what does that mean? That means that the disproportionately wealthier, whiter suburbs have power to choose the prosecutor who then enforces laws primarily in the poor, more minority urban core of that county. The DA's constituency feel the benefits of reduced crime. It's safer when they go to work during the week. Things feel safer when they go to see a show in the city on the weekends. They don't feel like drugs are going to come to their children. But they don't feel the costs. It's not their brother, not their nephew, not their uncle, not their sister, not their mother, not their dad, not anyone who's going to prison. They don't know those people. right? And those people don't live near them. Those people don't have the same jobs as them. Those people don't look like them. right? And there's a profound empathetic gap. And it's driven in no, to a significant degree by race by history of redlining and other things that have made sure that the white suburbs don't have to feel the cost that they're imposing on the black cities. Right? And as it stands, we tend to elect our DAs in a way that will make them ignore the cost and focus on the benefits. And that's a huge problem that we've not begun to remotely wrestle with. Now, like I said, it'd be a good idea to get some of these drug offenders out of prison. That is not the place for them to be. But there's a problem with our rhetoric of saying, let's get the nonviolent drug offender out of prison. Now, I'll be the first to admit, that's where we have to start. Right? You don't have 40 years of prison growth, and then in July 2010 say, I'm introducing the let's be nicer to murderers bill. Right? I get it. You start with drugs. But here's the problem. A couple months ago, 
just after my book was far enough along, my editors refused to let me put this in the book. <clears throat> um, Vox ran a poll. I think it was a very important poll. They asked lots of questions about criminal justice reform. But there's two I want to focus on. The first question they asked is, do you think a majority of people in prison are there for drugs? They asked liberal, moderates, and conservatives. That's how they broke out their survey. And the results are, everyone said yes. About 70% of liberals to about 60% of conservatives said a majority of people are there for drugs. It's 16%, not 50. Right? But I think the fact we've been hammering over again, over and over again, it's all low-level nonviolent, all low-level nonviolent, has convinced the Americans that half our prisoners are there on a drug charge, and they're not. It's the next question. That, though, is rectifiable. It's the next question that's the one that's really frightening. Next question was, should we take, for those who have been convicted of violence, but pose no threat of recidivism, should we punish them less? And everyone said no. 60% of liberals, almost 70% of conservatives, said we cannot change the way in which we punish violent people convicted of violence. There's no reason to assume our current punishment levels are based on any sort of science or, or, or data, right? It's our intuitive gut of how to punish these people, but we're unwilling to change the way we punish them because we've been told that we don't have to make the hard calls, right? We've been told that Santa Claus can come along and solve the easy, low-level, nonviolent drug cases, and we can't. We need to address those too, but we need to be careful that we don't do things that make these kind of reforms harder. And oftentimes, you know how we pass reforms for low-level nonviolent drug offenders? What the deal is legislators create? They cut the sanctions for property and drug offenses. And in order not to look tough on, soft on crime, they raise them for people convicted of violence. Right? That's what our rhetoric has gotten us. So it's not just the fact that it's like, OK, we should focus on this more. So we restructure things, we actually get things wrong. Right? And we're creating and making it difficult to make the reforms we need to make going forward. What should we do when it comes to violence? There are things we can do. We should expand parole for people convicted of violence. California did this with Prop 36. Third strikers, whose third strike was nonviolent, but whose earlier strikes might have been, were eligible for early parole. Several thousand have been let out of prison at this point. Their recidivism rate is one-tenth the state average, 5% versus 50%, because they're old. They're 50, and they're 60, and they're just not doing dumb stuff anymore. Right? Louisiana is wrestling with this idea. Louisiana is proposing that if you've been in prison for at least 30 years and you're at least 60 years old, you should be eligible for parole. You shouldn't be released. You should just be parole eligible. Legislature seems to like it. Governor seems to like it. DA's association says, hell no. Right? Countries, every sentence we've imposed is the exact right sentence. We've made no mistakes, no reform. We'll see who's more powerful here. It's going to be a close call. Um, someone told me that the DA on the panel actually had a copy of my book, like highlighted and dog-eared. So he read it, clearly didn't agree with it, um, but you know, at least he read it. Um, I think we should give local communities more say. Right? I would rather see the DA be elected in Chicago and then Cook County. The DA be elected in Detroit and elected in Wayne County. Combine, merge the costs and benefits. It won't be perfect. Right? The DA of Detroit is going to respond to the gentrified parts of Detroit more than the poor parts of Detroit, but at least that's better than responding to the incredibly wealthy in different suburbs of Wayne County. Right? I think that, almost more than appointing DAs, is the way to go. Localize it. And maybe some of this will be tougher. Right? James Foreman's new book argues that some of the incredible punitiveness of the 1970s and 80s came from black communities that felt the harm of crime and therefore wanted to be tougher. The, the Amsterdam Times in New York City called for the death penalty for heroin trafficking during the 70s. Right? But at least they're feeling the cost and benefits. They will respond in a more rational kind of way, sometimes tougher, sometimes softer. Please don't get this lag we have now where you're going to be tougher but not softer. Perhaps we should depoliticize prosecutors, and we should definitely depoliticize judges. Right? I understand the logic of electing judges. It was a view that the appointment process was utterly corrupt, and we're going to serve the transparency of democracy, shine on judges. But that's not how it works. Right? I live in Illinois. I got my ballot. It had 110 judges in Cook County. I had to choose whether or not to retain them or not. I had no idea who these people were. 
right? How could anyone know who 110 judges were and make the right call about who's doing a good job and who's not? It's going to turn on that one bad case, right? It's all it's going to turn on. And it's a horrible way to choose judges. And there's clear evidence that elected state judges become more punitive as elections near, right? They, they know they can't afford the Willie Horton or the Daryl Dennis. We should also fund and publicize interventions that work. There are things we can do on the ground that work. We just tend not to fund them, right? The rise of shootings in Chicago sees it pretty closely tied to the defunding of a program called Cure Violence. Now they want to jack up prison sentences. That realizing that the shooting seems to be tied to an idea to actually focus on sort of the underlying causes of violence itself that stopped it before it started rather than reacting to it after it started, right? Prison is easy and politically popular. These interventions are riskier and more tentative, but we know things that work and we're testing more and more things that work and we need to move our money and our attention in, in that direction. So that's violence. We're going to have to talk about it someday. We might as well start talking about it now. And we're starting to. I'll point out that in a dissent recently, a couple weeks ago, Richard Posner, who I don't think anyone would view as some liberal bleeding heart, um, sua sponte, had nothing to do with what the majority is talking about, just out of the blue in a sentencing case, said, by the way, time to start talking about how we treat violent offenders. We punish them too hard. And actually, I will say, cited my work, which is how I found it, because I do Google myself sometimes. Um, <laughs> maybe a lot. Um, Right, like you're starting to see this shift take place, but it's slow and it's tentative. The last bit, private prisons. Drives me crazy. First of all, eight, not 80, 8% 8 of all prisoners are in a private prison. Eight. 92% in the state, 8% in privates. And if you're going to complain about how terrible things are in CCSA's eerie correctional facility, you better be ready to talk about Pelican Bay as well. Right, where the guards would stage gladiator fights and then film them while the guard prisoners killed each other and then laugh about it afterwards. Right? That was an entirely state facility. Most private prisons are in just five states. And there's no evidence that states with private prisons saw any faster growth than states without them. There's no evidence they had any impact at all. Bigger deal is it has nothing to do with profit and everything to do with incentives. Here's your standard private prison horror story. The state enters into a contract with the prison and pays it per prisoner per day. The prison officials then decide to cut spending on training and programming and food and resources to get their per diem costs down just below what the state is paying them so they get a little bit of profit per prisoner. They then take that profit out of the prison and use it for their own ends and then seek to maximize the number of bodies in their prison every day because that's how they maximize profit. They'll fight reform. They, do, they actually favor recidivism because that brings bodies back and that just means more money. That's a horrible situation. That's a terrible situation. And what I've just described is the entirely public sector arrangement in Louisiana. There's not a single private prison in the story I just told you. The state facing capacity constraints entering the contracts with county sheriffs to house state prisoners in county jails. Per prisoner per day, the sheriffs cut back on funding, spending, took the profits out to actually pay for their own departments outside of the jail, and then fought against every reform because any reform would mean they would lose money. It's not profit. If you incentivize a public actor to act in a selfish way, that public actor will act no more or less selfishly than a private actor. Why not create contracts that reward based on recidivism rates, not based on per prisoner per day? Australia just opened a prison that does this. Pennsylvania just changed all their halfway house contracts to have a, have a recidivism provision in them that provides bonuses if you, if you beat your target and takes your contract away if you don't. Right? It's not that it's a profit, it's that we fund the wrong things. But the problem is that by focusing so much of our attention on the private sector, we ignore the public sector, and that's what drives this. Mass incarceration is a public sector failing. We talk about the profits that private prisons make. They make $400 million a year in profit. That is a lot of money. I would gladly take that. That would just about pay for private school in New York City for a year. We have three kids. It's not pleasant. Um, we spend $50 billion a year on corrections. Half to 75% of that is wages. 
who, in fact, is profiting. People that seem to have a hard time with this, I created a graph to make it easy, right? The gray line is private prison profits. The orange box is public prison guard wages, right? If someone's profiting off prisons, it's the guards, not the private prisons, far more. And here's a great example. New York State has shed 25,000 prisoners since 1999. It's the longest successful sustained decarceration the, American, the US has seen since mass incarceration started. Yet somehow, amazingly, we are spending more on prisons now than we did in 1999. We have no private prisons, none. 0.0%. People talk about these horrible contract terms and private prison contracts, these, these minimum capacity terms. You must pay us as if we have at least 80% of our beds filled. If you have less than 80%, you pay us as if there's someone in that bed. They call it the low crime tax. It's terrible. New York State is littered with half-empty prisons, fully staffed with guards. Tell me the difference between what New York State is doing and the private prison minimum capacity contract term. There is no difference. We are paying prisons to stay open with no, with no prisoners in them because the guard unions are very successful at keeping their jobs. Pennsylvania closed two prisons, laid off three guards. <laughs> Either those are the three most productive guards in American penological history, or they just don't fire people. And when you hear about those savings, we're gonna save $35,000 per prisoner we set free. That's wrong if you don't lay people off, right? The marginal cost outside of wages and benefits is usually one third to one seventh the average cost we hear all the time, right? So those savings just aren't there if you're not willing to tackle labor. Politicians, they're also kind of important in this. They like the jobs they think prisons bring. Prisons don't nearly bring the jobs they think, but they believe they bring them. Their voters think they bring them, so they want the jobs. In New York State, they really are sometimes the only job up there. But there's other far more powerful and far more insidious political implications that run here that no one's really talking about, although we're starting to, like the census. Now, I realize at this point, half of you just fell asleep. I wouldn't blame you. I'm falling asleep explaining it. Where does a prisoner live? Does he live in the prison? Or does he live where he lived just before he got arrested? In all but four states, you live in the prison. What that does is transfer tens of thousands of black and brown men from cities where they tend to be Democrats to rural areas that tend to be Republican, where they count as five-fifths of a person, and I use that fraction on purpose, but have no voting power outside of Maine and Vermont. There are state legislators all across the country who would not have a seat if they counted the prisoners living in the city where they came from rather than the rural area where they are. Of course they're going to fight reform. It's boring, dry enumeration issues, but they matter. When New York State got rid of this during a brief window when the Democrats controlled the entire legislature and, and, and the governor's mansion, because there's a distinct party bias to this, the Republicans still managed to split a conservative upstate Senate seat in half because they knew they were going to lose at least one seat when all those thousands of prisoners got pulled back to New York City and Buffalo. Right. Powerfully important, but no one really wants to talk about it. Also, this urban-suburban split when it comes to race I talked about before, right? You have these rural DAs, the urban, these DAs who represent the suburbs, but impose law on the city, right? And this separates the costs and the benefits. It's a huge cost that they tend to ignore. And I can talk about just the politics of, our, of us, right? We incentivize them to be tough because we're going to focus on the Willie Hortons and the Daryl Dennis's of the world and not reward them for the overall success that they have. And we have not yet begun to think about how to fix this. Until we fix this, it's just going to keep cycling through areas of punitiveness and non-punitiveness. My example of this is, is this, and I'll, I'll pretty much stop here. In 1970, Congress abolished all mandatory minimum laws for drugs in the Comprehensive Drug Act of 1970. One of the representatives who got on the floor of the House and said, this is an essential law to pass. These mandatories are terrible things, bad policy, bad justice, bad laws, was then Texas Representative George H.W. Bush, who as vice president and as president brought them all back. And now we're abolishing them again, except for heroin and fentanyl that we're bringing back even as we abolish all the others. 
And if we abolish them all now, I say, what's the over-under when we bring them all back again? Right? The system is designed to overreact to punitiveness. It's not designed. It has, been, it has been designed in a way, unintentionally, chaotically, with little thought or planning. It has been established in a way that will overreact to any increase in crime and underreact to the drops. Right now, reformers are shoveling through whatever they can because conditions are favorable. But they will turn. They will inevitably turn. They might already be turning now with these little upticks in crime that we're seeing. If we don't change our line politics, we're just going to keep cycling through this over and over again. So three small points, and I'll be quiet. One. The dramatic and the shocking is often what matters the least. Talk about the death penalty, talk about Weldon Angelos, talk about all these sort of shocking, horrible things, but those aren't really what matter, right? It's prosecutors signing pieces of paper in dingy county offices, right? It's, it's someone convicted of a violent crime spending four years in prison, perhaps they only spend two, or two years and they shouldn't spend any time at all because that's not actually gonna solve any of our problems, right? And it's unions lobbying behind the scenes, not these horrible, spectacular profits being generated by sort of these evil private prison firms. What matters is more local and more mundane. If you want, you're not going to solve this in some gilded Senate office, chain, no, office room, right? You're not going to test the Senate Judiciary Committee with bright lights and cameras and C-SPAN and CNN. That's not where it's going to get fixed. It's going to get fixed in some dark, fluorescent-lit DA's office, convincing that he just doesn't have to be quite that harsh, right? And the most important fixes are going to be the hardest, right? That's why they're a problem. If they're spectacular and they matter, we've probably fixed it already, right? The, Pareto, the biggest problem like Pareto improvements is if they existed, we'd already get there, right? The things that matter are the things that are kind of boring, but just drive the system. And it's, it's, it's this small, local, mundane stuff, but it's what matters, and we're just not paying enough attention to it. We're starting to, but until we really start focusing on sort of prosecutors and violence and, and unions and sort of the underlying weird political incentives of census counting and jobs, I don't think we're gonna nearly make as much progress as we want. I think our things we can do for all these things, we have to really start shifting our focus to, to these issues. So I will stop there and look forward to the comments. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. Um, so let me start by saying that this is a great book. And it's on a very important topic, as was well illustrated and could be discussed even further. The U.S. incarceration rate is extreme by sort of any standard anyone could possibly <coughs> propose. It cries out for an explanation, just as, uh, just from the perspective of social science and trying to understand the world around us, but also, as suggested, uh, cries out probably uh, for some reduction and certainly for some attention to make sure that uh, we want to have nearly the magnitude uh, of incarceration that we have in the United States. Now, um, John didn't quite use the language in his presentation that he does in the book, so I'll try to explain just a little bit. But he talks about, uh, in the beginning of the book, something called the standard story for why the US has such a high incarceration rate, and in particular, why it's grown dramatically over the last roughly uh, four decades uh, until very recently. And his standard story, he discussed, but he didn't, I don't think, quite use the words. Uh, is the war on drugs and the increased uh, length of sentences and the private prisons. Those are the things that many reformers point to repeatedly as the reasons why the U.S. incarceration is high and grew uh, to such a, a, an extent. And John offers an alternate story that focuses on prosecutors. And he didn't give quite as many details of his alternate story as I thought he was going to, so I'll have to try to fill that in a little bit uh, as well. But that, that should be fine. So. Um, of course, I think this is a terrific book, but a job of a discussant is to perhaps push back a little bit. So I'm going to do that uh, to some degree. But it's pretty clear that it's a difference of 
description in how we're presenting it, not any fundamental uh, description about uh, the facts. So I will first just respond briefly to these three elements of the standard story, uh, just to sort of fix sort of ideas on that, and discuss one part of that, the drug prohibition aspect, in a little bit more detail. And in fact, on that one, I'm sort of slightly critical, except what John said in his comments felt somewhat different to me than what I thought I read in the book. So I don't think we'd really disagree much at all on that, but uh, I'll discuss that briefly. Um, then I want to suggest that if we look at some key facts, some key figures uh, from the book, that the standard story is, in fact, plausibly more consistent. And this is only looking at aggregate data, so it's not by itself convincing uh, that you would always want to look at much more detailed uh, kinds of data broken down by state, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's a sense in which I think the standard story is probably at least as consistent, maybe more consistent with these aggregate data than PS. PS is the FAF story, is John's story. Um, and then I mainly want to really emphasize what I will call a modified version of the standard story, which I think subsumes a lot of what John has said, and I think shows that we're really fundamentally in agreement with some picky or stuff about details. Okay. So is the standard story oversold? So of course, I completely agree, there are some legalizers. And I would emphasize the word some, because of course, many people who are pro-legalization make these statements about incarceration in a more careful, balanced, nuanced way. But some legalizers do get awfully close to saying the prisons are completely full with people who are just sitting on the uh, doorstep outside their apartments, and a cop came along and arrested them for having half a joint in their pocket. And that's just grotesquely false. Relatively few of the incarcerations on drug charges are for marijuana. Okay, almost none of them uh, are for possession. It is for more serious drugs, and it's for trafficking and so on, or trafficking combined with other sorts of uh, crimes. So I completely accept that that exaggeration goes on. Um, but I think it's important to say only some legalizers do that. Not that they're not, we're not all quite uh, guilty of that. Uh, is sentence length a major factor? So I was somewhat more agnostic on that point. Uh, when I came to it, to reading John's material. And, but I had the impression that sentence length had, in fact, in this accounting sense, explained a lot of the increase in incarceration. And John partially convinced me that I was uh, mistaken. But there are some other papers out there that have a different view, I think partly focusing on a somewhat different part of the last 40 years. So I'm happy to concede that it's less than has often claimed. But I'm not quite ready to concede that it's none of the story if we look at the longer time series. Uh, on the prison lobby argument that John was finishing up on, I completely agree. That is, there may be reasons to like or not like private prisons, but as a major factor in the incarceration growth, uh, it's really sort of a non-issue. Okay, so uh, we could go into all sorts of wonky details about all of those claims. We're going to skip that in the interest of everybody's uh, sanity and, and awakeness. Okay? Uh, John clearly makes a good case, a plausible case, for these three key elements uh, that of the standard story that he says uh, are somewhere between exaggerated and more or less wrong. Um, and he certainly makes a good argument uh, for all of those. I do want to come back a little bit to the role of drug prohibition. Okay. So um, I took away from reading the book, sorry, back up just slightly, uh, that John wasn't necessarily sympathetic to legalizing drugs. Um, and now he said very clearly here that he is. So a lot of what I'm about to say is not quite right. But <laughs> let me say it anyway. And if I missed it in the book, I certainly apologize. But a different perspective that I think is useful to add to what John has presented 
says economics is not just about um, thinking about endogenous outcomes, saying there's lots of incarceration compared to other countries, therefore we should reduce it. Instead, economists try to evaluate policies and ask what are all the effects of policies, okay, taking into account all the outcomes that they may be affecting, and then trying to balance those outcomes, good, bad, and different, against the cost, and so on and so forth. Okay? So just to illustrate that idea, we evaluate policies rather than just taking as given some outcome and saying it should be lower or higher. If you think about inequality, economists would say, doesn't matter whether you start with the presumption that inequality is bad, you have to ask whether a particular policy that tries to reduce inequality is doing more harm than good. Super punitive tax rates that crush the economy might be bad for everyone, even if you dislike inequality. Monopoly in some settings may have undesirable features, such as when there's only one operating system you can purchase for your computer and it's priced at way above marginal cost. But before you say we should break up Microsoft because it's a monopolist, you have to ask about other things, like are there network externalities from everybody being able to use the same operating system, and so on. Just because we think education is good doesn't mean unlimited subsidies for education are a good idea. We have to evolve, evaluate policies toward education, taking into account all their effects. Like ice cream is good. Everybody likes it. But that doesn't mean we should subsidize it. Okay? We have to ask what are all the pros and cons of subsidizing or taxing or mandating. Okay? So let's take that perspective um, to the discussion for today. So one could have, rather than asking what explains the high incarceration rate, which is what a significant fraction of the book is devoted to before it gets to the policy uh, implications, one could, should certainly also ask which criminal justice policies are desirable. So take mandatory minimums. Okay? People. A lot of people, especially on the left, are very, very outraged about mandatory minimums, but I think they're being a little sloppy because they're not really asking the full question. They're not asking about all aspects of the policy. They see some people serving very long sentences. They see an outcome that they don't like, but the reason they don't like the outcome is because people are serving these long sentences for things they sh think shouldn't be crimes, like drug trafficking or drug possession, okay, mainly trafficking. Okay? And so, um, if they were thinking about something else, some other crime, say murder, they wouldn't necessarily be so opposed to a mandatory minimum. They might be happy to say, gee, if you commit a premeditated murder, you should always get at least three years, and I don't care if that takes discretion away uh, from the judge. So we should ask, what are all the policies that are desirable, and focus on that okay, in an important way, along with trying to explain the incarceration rate. And the reason is, the policies are what we control, and that comes through very much toward the end of John's discussion here and, and toward the end of the book. But there's also a lot of, or, a lot is not fair. There's a little bit of the incarceration rate is high, so clearly we should think about reducing it. But we have to think carefully about which policies we can control. So viewed that way, dismissing, and that's too strong, I take that, that word back, but minimizing the role of the war on drugs seems slightly odd to me in the following sense even if the drug war didn't explain any incarcerations, even if no one was in jail on drug charges, it's still a horrible policy because it does all sorts of bad things. It creates violence and corruption and quality control problems and spreads HIV and leads to diminishes uh, respect for civil liberties and on and on and on. Okay? So why not say, to me, to my preference, more front and center in the, uh, in the book, of course, okay, I've argued that drug war is not the major factor. It's only 16% if we sort of take 
uh, the, the recent numbers. But 16% of 2 million people is a lot of people, and it's a policy we should have gotten rid of uh, you know, from the get-go. So that should be front and center as one of the things that we talk about in trying to uh, have a better incarceration policy. OK. Um, now let's turn to John's story, which focuses on prosecutors. So his argument is that prosecutors have become more aggressive over the past several decades. So we have far more incarcerations uh, per arrest or per crime. Okay? And that's what's contributed to this major increase uh, in the prison population. And the main reason he gives is that it was a reaction to rising crime in the 1960s. Okay? So that's, of course, plausible. But he is distinguishing it from some other sorts of things that people have talked about, which is that incarceration was a response to the civil rights movement, okay, or that the drug war was a response to the civil rights movement. As an example, Michelle Alexander's book basically argues that people in society who were scared of or antagonistic toward, racist toward African Americans, as they saw Jim Crow being dismantled, as they saw African Americans getting more rights and more ability to secede society, wanted to figure out another way to put them down, that is, to lock them up. And the drug war was one mechanism for that, okay, and more aggressive sentencing and prosecution and so on uh, were other mechanisms of that. There, of course, are other stories that might explain uh, changes in attitudes toward crime from the baby boom, just sort of scaring uh, people that there was too much uncertainty, too many sort of people who weren't part of the establishment going on, that there were people returning from Vietnam, that there was a violence effect from the Vietnam War, and so on. So um, my response to John's alternative hypothesis is obviously reasonable. Okay? Crime rates are almost certainly one thing which influences the police, prosecutors, judges, jurors, legislatures, the citizenry to want to be tougher on crime, to want to think about uh, incarcerating more people, whether it's incarcerating more per crime or it's uh, longer sentences. But I want to argue that the timing of the changes in crime and incarceration doesn't so easily fit John's story. I think it fits the standard story or a modified version of that a little bit better. So we're going to look at the three first figures uh, in John's book. Um, OK, so this is the incarceration rate. And you can see that, as John showed us a few minutes ago, it bounces around in this 100,000, 100 per 100,000 range for a long time. It's actually declining from roughly 1960 to about 1970 or early 1970s. And it doesn't start to go up until about here, which is the early 1970s. Okay? And indeed, it had been declining up until that point. Okay? These are the crime rates that are from the standard sources that John reports. You can see that the crime rates have been going up quite clearly and quite substantially okay, from 1960 to uh, roughly 1970 and beyond. In fact, it roughly doubled okay, over that period okay, from here to approximately here. Okay. So there's this big increase in crime okay, for 10 years before we start to see the increase in incarceration. Indeed, incarceration was mildly, just a little bit, was going down for those first 10 years. Okay. So that's okay, a little bit, it's not trivially reconciled with the story that more crime led to more uh, to prosecutors being more aggressive because the incarcerations didn't go up for a good 10 years after the increase in crime started occurring. You can see that a little bit more dramatically here. 
where we have, uh, again, this is figure three from John's book, we have prisoners per 1,000 violent or property crimes, the two different series. And again, prisoners per crime is going down or stable until near the end of the 1970s, almost until 1980. Okay? So to summarize what I just sort of tried to describe, crime was rising fast in the 1960s, but incarceration doesn't rise until the mid-1970s. Property crime levels off in the 1980s, yet incarceration keeps climbing. Okay? Violent crime, crime is declining from the early 1990s. 1990s, yet incarceration again keeps rising until roughly the mid or late uh, 2000s. Okay? So the correlation between crime rates and incarceration rates isn't particularly good, at least viewed from the perspective of those aggregate data. Okay? Let's think about those same data from the perspective of the standard story, okay? uh, which emphasizes the drug war in particular, but also perhaps some interactions between drug policy and civil rights policy, uh, and so on, uh, in the 1960s. So the incarceration rate indeed starts rising after the Civil Rights Act is passed, after the Affirmative Action Executive Order, uh, and the Nixon administration in particular, after Nixon declares the war on drugs and passed the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. Okay. The drug war enforcement rises, drug war enforcement is measured by number of arrests, number of seizures, and so on and so forth, rises consistently from the 1970s onward with a bit of moderation by those metrics in the late 90s and 2000s, which is actually when the growth in incarceration tends to slow down a little bit. It's still growing for sure until very recently, but it was a little bit slower just when uh, drug policy was starting to moderate and enforcement was starting to moderate. So the correlation okay, between a, the standard story, war on drugs in particular, and the incarceration rate looked at from that long perspective uh, seems to go in the right direction, seems to fit. There's still a third story which I think is interesting to think about, which argues that people who believe in, who believe the economic system, sorry, there's a word missing, people who believe the economic system rewards merit also believe in harsh punishment. That is, if you think the system is basically fair and you can get ahead and you have lots of opportunities to be successful okay, legally, and then you see someone who's messed up and done things that are illegal, your attitude is, they had their chance, this is a great system, so we're going to put those people away big time if they don't obey the rules. Okay? Now, that's a view that certainly seems somewhat consonant with Ronald Reagan's at, uh, attitude toward the economy, toward economic uh, policy, and so on, okay, starting in the early 1980s. And implicit, if that's right, then the demand for punishment okay, under this theory sort of should have increased substantially during that period. Okay, that's exactly the theory and the model that was proposed in a paper presented at Cato a number of years ago. And it provides lots of support for this view that cross-sectionally across countries, that over time within countries and within states, that even in an experiment that they conducted with, as they say, uh, students at an Ivy League business school that they don't name, but of course... Rafael Detella teaches at Harvard Business School, so we can guess where those students, were, where the experiment was done. So they provide a lot of evidence that this view okay, makes sense. And of course, a lot of the increased incarceration, sorry, happens, okay, starting 
And it's especially dramatic starting in the 1980s after Reagan is elected when that view and therefore the implied increase in severity and increased attitude that we were really, really going to punish criminals okay, would have been kicking in. So I would like to propose a modified version of the standard story, which says following. Lots of factors generated harsher views on crime and punishment in the United States, starting from uh, the late 60s, 1970s. That included the Civil Rights Act and the interaction race with attitudes toward enforcement that Michelle Alexander focuses on. She talks about it especially in the context of leading to a demand for the drug war, but it's perfectly consistent to think that those fears that whites had would have led them to be harsh on punishment, especially punishment applied to African-Americans more broadly. That aspects of the Vietnam War and people returning to the war would have contributed because there were these uh, countercultures going on that scared the, the mainstream along with the baby boom, that Reagan's election and Reagan's attitude solidified uh, and promoted a harsher attitude toward punishment and toward crime, along with the drug war, uh, and with the rising crime rates, for sure, uh, that were going on as well. So all of these things translated into rising incarceration via many mechanisms, uh, obviously including the increased incarcerations per uh, crime or arrest that John highlights, but in some cases perhaps via sentencing, via three strikes policies, via parole policies, via prosecutorial behavior. All of those, all of these things on the second bullet point were responses to the changes in attitudes precipitated by the events on the first bullet point And so maybe it's a mistake to treat the standard story versus the alternate story as either or. They're part of a broader package that things that happened in the 60s and early 70s all conspired to generate this very different attitude toward punishment and toward the degree to which we tolerate crime. Uh, And therefore, um, that needs to be considered in thinking about how we explain and perhaps how we respond to the increase in incarceration. Now, that view, I think, is depressing in a way which is somewhat similar to what John was emphasizing toward the end, which is that fixing all this is hard. If there's this innate attitude among some part of some fraction of white people in our society that is going to push back against African Americans having equal access, whether it's via Jim Crow or whether it's via the drug laws or whether it's via uh, harsh penalties for violent crime or any other type of crime, okay? if the situation reflects endemic views about crime and race and punishment, changing those views okay, is not easy. It takes time and it's not obvious in some ways how much success has been achieved in that dimension. Uh, over the past several decades. So it is clearly not as simple, I completely agree with John, as just legalize it. Just legalizing it wouldn't change the underlying attitudes that lead to this uh, harsh harsh attitude toward criminals and this uh, taste for incarceration. So those kinds of changes might help both legalizing drugs and the kinds of things that John was describing about reforming the incentives for prosecutors, but not necessarily quickly, because if the underlying demand for punishment is still there, prosecutors and others will find ways around it uh, so that they end uh, end up incarcerating a lot of people. So to sum up, um, emphasize again, this is a great book on a very important topic. I certainly find very large fraction of it convincing, and it 
very generally suggest a far more nuanced and thoughtful view of incarceration and the policies uh, related to incarceration. With apologies to Louis C.K., I would say, but maybe it throws out the baby with the bathwater just a little bit. So I nudge back on a few things, but fundamentally, okay, I just think it's terrific. Thanks. Well, thank you both for great presentations. Uh, John, did you want to respond? Um, just a couple of quick thoughts, but not much. Um, so thank you for the comments. That They were great. I would just say I wasn't trying to argue that these other theories were irrelevant, that civil rights or Vietnam or baby boomers, I'm, I'm certainly never going to pass up a chance to blame the baby boomers for a lot of things. Um, no offense to the boomers here, but <clears throat> it's an issue. Um, <laughs> More, I was just saying that many of those accounts, like the new Jim Crow and also like David Garland's work that you referred to, the culture control, they almost write crime out of the picture altogether. If you actually read the, the first version of, of the new Jim Crow, in later editions it was toned down a bit, but Alexander almost tries to argue that the rise in crime was a reporting issue and that it wasn't actually a real rise in crime, it was all disorder. And, and I think what my goal is to say, no, like these things matter, but we don't want to lose sight of the role crime played as well. That's why I sort of pull crime, that crime often probably played a much more fundamental central role. And I think much, maybe the academics are trying to sort of push crime out to, to the margins. Um, but I, I don't, I, if it came across as trying to sort of model causal, it was all crime story. That I definitely wasn't trying to do. Um, I guess I just say, is it possible to get my slides up one more time? Just oh, one yeah. picture I want to show if it's possible. Um, when it comes to this idea of the timing of things and, the, and, and how it ties into war and drugs, there's, there's a fascinating picture from New York State. Um, I didn't have it in my talk, but I think I have it. I don't know how to move my slides elsewhere. Um, maybe I won't be able to get to it because um, I can't even get the mouse to bring things. And, oh, I see, I see, I see. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, these are people in New York State prisons for drug charges on drug offenses. The first line in 1972 is when the Rockefeller drug laws got passed. This is when Nelson Rockefeller declares war on drugs in New York State. Between 1972 and 1984, the total number of people in New York State prisons for drugs actually falls. For the first 10 years of Rockefeller drug laws, we end up sending fewer people to prison for drugs than we passed the law. Then in 1984, all of a sudden, drug offenses in New York State skyrocket. So by the, by the time we get to around 1990, about 35% of all people in New York State prisons are there for drugs. We have one of the highest rates of drug incarcerations of any state in the country. 1984 isn't just some random date when New York State suddenly decided to crack down on drugs. Right? What happened in New York State in 1984? Crack and crack violence. Right? And so this idea that somehow it's responding to the war on drugs doesn't say the fact there's also this, this trend in crime, and that at least in New York State, where I focus a little more carefully, the timing is much more tied to violence than drugs, and the attack on drugs is a pretextual attack on violence. Right? And then when does New York State start changing? Around 1999, before the first reform in 2004, and that reform is completely toothless. Right? Lots of fancy math that actually doesn't change the sentence. It goes from a 24-year sentence where you gotta serve a third of your time to an eight-year sentence where you gotta serve 100% of your time. Glad my law students struggle with the math there. I'm glad most of you guys got that pretty quickly. <laughs> it starts dropping before the reform. It drops through the first reform, and it drops through the second real reform in 2008 with no change in trend. 
right? The, Manhattan, the New York City DAs, and this is all entirely driven by New York City. The rest of the state is sending more people to prison for drugs. New York City is sending fewer. We're just so big that we drive the state numbers. But it was not being driven necessarily by what's going on in Albany. It's being driven by what's going on in the counties. It was responding to violence, not so much to drugs. So it's, 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 the, the timing, gets, when you break it down to a more micro level, can get a little bit more, more complicated. Um, I will say a more troubling story for my crime story that a lot of people wrestle with, this, this is the last one I'll make, is that we have two ways of measuring crime. Uniform crime reports, reports to the police about crimes that have happened, and a National Crime Victimization Survey, a giant 200,000-person survey asking people, were you victimized in a certain way? And today, they're pretty similar. In 1960 to 1980, they are radically different, right? Between 1960 and 1975, the reported UCR crime rate goes up. Between 1960 and 1980, the National Crime Victimization Survey for every crime except for murder, because they don't track murder, because you can't survey that one, um, they plummet dramatically. And while we don't quite know which one is right, the evidence seems to be pushing that the victimization survey was doing a better job tracking real trends than the uniform crime reports. Now, that doesn't mean the fact that our perceptions of crime weren't changing. Our official perceptions come from the UCR, and that was going up. So fear of crime had been rising. Actual victimization might have been falling. It's a very weird thing that's going on during the 70s and 80s. They track each other very closely now. That's a good sign for understanding how the world works. Um, but the crime story, and I don't talk about the victimization survey in the book because I didn't really appreciate how bad it was when I started writing the book. It's actually a, a very tricky issue for the actual impact of, of real offending versus perceived offending on, on these trends. So it's, it's actually, here I'm actually undermining my argument. This strengths my argument. This last point sort of makes it even more complicated in a much more difficult way. Um, but I'd much rather hear other people's questions, and I appreciate everything uh, you said, Jeff. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I'll take the moderator's prerogative and ask a question. I, as I was reading this, I was thinking of, you know, um, my neighborhood, it's still gentrifying in Northeast DC. And I'm thinking about what Harlem has looked like over, over the past 20 years. Do you think that if we move to the sort of like county, I mean, DC is a little bit different because it, obviously the, the government structure is different, but do you think moving to that city level government could be used as a tool of like, it, like enhancing gentrification? And if so, what do you think we could do about it? I'm not sure, right? And gen gentrification is a tough issue. I don't really understand. That, that, not you asked me to get into the dynamics of housing policy. Right? I barely understand how prisons operate, going to housing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of law professor, I, I understand one thing kind of well, right? Most people say, I'm going to write on this one day and torts one day and property the next. I'm like, I've studied one thing for like 15 years of my life. Uh, so housing is like, oh, that's just, I barely understand how housing works. Um, but I, I think the broader point would be that I think if you move into the cities, yes, the gentrified and gentrifying areas will have more political power than the poorer areas. Uh, but the overall impact, so the, but the proportion of political voice that's going to be going to the poor areas will be greater than being combined those same powerful gentrified, gentrified areas and cities with the suburbs as well, right? So it, it can't magnify the effect, even though I think you know, the, the wider, wealthier, more gentrified parts will still have more power even in the, in the city version. All right, and with that, we'll open up to questions. Some, some rules uh, starting off. Uh, please wait to be called on and have a mic brought to you. Um, please name any uh, affiliation you may have and uh, please keep it in the form of a question. Okay, right here. Thanks, I'm uh, Jesse Janetta with the uh, Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute. I was wondering since California was at the top of the list in terms of decarceration, what you make of some of the things that they're doing there, whether it's realignment, which brings more of the cost, I guess, of county prosecutors' decisions to sentence people to the county level because more people are in the jails run by the county sheriffs or on the county probation department roles, or 
uh, what they did with Prop 47, where they reclassified a number of offenses around drug possession and other things that had been felonies as misdemeanors. That's yeah, a great question, because California is an outlier. It's worth asking, can we replicate it? I don't think we necessarily can. The, the, the procedural way California got where it was is kind of unique. You know, the Ninth Circuit just took things over, and that made a big difference. So what realignment is, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the way California responded to, this, to the Ninth Circuit saying, get this under control. You're at, 100, you're at 200% capacity. you got to get on 130% capacity. You're killing one extra person needlessly per six days. That's unacceptable. Um, and to be clear, for all the debate about the 1994 Crime Control Act we heard during the 2016 campaign, that's kind of a sideshow, no one talked about the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which is actually the thing that Clinton's passed that allowed California to say in the Supreme Court, yeah, we're killing people, can't touch us, right? And they lost 5-4, right? It's an incredibly powerful law that's almost impossible to appeal prison conditions. And no one complains about that, because I think sort of the clear horror of the, score the clear severity of the 1994 Crime Control Act, the Prison Litigation Reform Act is all about like exhausting institutional remedies before applying to the state court. It's boring, but, but again, profoundly powerful because of that and ignored because of that. So what realignment says, look, for these people we call triple nons, non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual offenders, which interestingly includes things like negligent homicide, counts as a non-violent offense in California. If you get convicted of a felony that carries a state prison term, you still have to be housed in the county jail at county expense, even if it's going to take eight years to, to spend to serve out your term. Most of these are two to four, some are up to eight. To me, that solves a huge moral hazard problem. One of the problems we have with prosecutors is that they send someone to prison. There's county officials paid for by the county budget. You send someone to prison, the state pays for it. Send them to jail, the county pays for it. It's actually cheaper to send someone to prison than to put them on probation to the county officials. Right, huge problem. Now, according to some ACLU that I talked to, that wasn't what they were thinking about with realignment. They weren't trying to solve that moral hazard problem, but they did, and then didn't. Because what they did is they realized the counties all said, this is incredibly expensive, we can't afford this, because their proper response is, exactly, right, that's the point. But what Sacramento did is introduce all these subsidies to cover the cost of expanding jail capacity, and then they made these subsidies permanent. Right, so now it's kind of the private prison model, where they're gonna get paid per prisoner, per year, per day, to offset the cost of these enemies, these, these or it's some sort of subsidy. So they've undermined it a bit. But the idea was right, right? Take away the free rider problem and make the counties internalize it. And there is evidence that what happened to California is they had two giant drops. There's a huge one-year decline with realignment, and then nothing about three years, and then a smaller drop with Prop 47. And that's kind of what you see with all these reforms, is that when you pass a reform, there's a giant one-year drop, and then things kind of stabilize, which to me is kind of a troubling sign. Right? To me, it suggests that most of the reforms cut off sort of these low-level churners who spend like one year in prison, but they don't get sort of the deeper people sort of drive populations. But I think realignment did play a big role in California, much bigger than Prop 47. Um, but realignment was sort of, I don't think other states can do it. Um, I think California's in a tremendous political power. The Democrats had a supermajority for a couple of years there in the Senate. Uh, it was a very blue state. Um, Indiana tried to do it. They tried to do it for their lowest level of felony. Uh, had to be served in a local jail instead of in the prison. And then the savings are going to be redirected back to the county to pay for those programs. And I was talking about how the marginal cost doesn't equal the average cost. That Indiana learned it the hard way. There were no savings, right? Because prison is cheap compared to training programs and treatment programs at the county level. So then you compare the cost of the county program to the state prison when the state didn't lay off any guards, so there weren't that much savings. It was actually the state DOCs like, yeah, bring them back. We're the cheap ones. And, and they are. Um, so I think it's very hard to do that, but I think California was very about realignment. Realignment, I, I fear, as brilliant an idea as it is, I'm not sure other states are going to be able to follow in their footsteps. Uh, woman, three rows back. Yeah, four, sorry. Bright lights. Neither one of you mentioned the 
correlation between the closure of mental institutions and the fact that now mental institutions, uh, that uh, prisons and jails are the major provider of mental health services. Can you talk about that? So Bernard Harcourt was on my dissertation committee, so I feel a little uncomfortable because I'm about to disagree with the basic point he made. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating point. So the basic idea is that if you, if you measure incarceration rates, not as people in prison, but as people in prisons plus mental hospitals, that incarceration rate in the 1950s looks like the incarceration rate in the 1990s. They're just in different places. And then you then, so what you get, instead of, instead of getting this rising prison, what you get is, I'll do it backwards, so this, I'm orienting now towards you guys, older time here, newer time here, right? Incarceration rate drops through deinstitutionalization to the 70s and then rises through prisons in the 80s and 90s, and murder is kind of a perfectly mirrored image of that. Right? But the trick to that is that they're not the same populations. Right? The mental health was older and more female. Right? So unless you think about locking up older women somehow reduces crime the same way as locking up younger men, it's hard to see what that story is. And to me, what's much more likely is that when society, is that there's much of a, it's a spurious correlation, right? That when a society is relatively stable and doesn't like disorder, crime is low, and they're gonna lock people up for some form of disorder. In the 50s, it was for mental health problems. In the 90s, it was for crime, right? And then society is kind of more unstable. It's not surprising that prison and hospitals are low during the late 60s, early 70s, when social norms are kind of completely chaotic, right? Crime will be high during that time as well, right? And so I, I think that crime lockup connection is, is kind of blurry. Um, that's a different issue from like the role prisons play as mental health institutions. That's a much trickier question that I don't have a good answer for. Um, I think also that's arguably much more of a jail issue than a prison issue, right? That's much more dealing with the sort of this intake churning point than at, 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 the, at the prison level. Um, and I, I think it's something we have to wrestle with. Um, I don't have a good solution for how to like shift mental health treatment outside the jail. Um, my concern with focusing on that story though, is that it's important to realize that people with mental health problems are much more likely to be the victims of crime than the offenders, right? So our constant emphasis on look at the way jails and prisons become mental health institutions tells a narrative that people with mental health problems pose a threat. They're actually much more likely to be victimized, which is a completely different issue that, that we also need to not lose, lose sight of. Did you wanna add to no, that? I'll pass, I, I don't have anything to add to that. Okay, uh, way in the back. Y'all are back. Thank you. Uh, Martin Moulton, uh, DC resident. My dad's from Costa Rica where they've already decriminalized all drugs. But my question kind of relates to an early question from the lunchtime conversation. Um, what do we do about the jobs? You mentioned the guards jobs. If we lay, actually lay off all those low skill, undereducated jobs, where are they gonna go? So in New York State, they've often tried to combine prison closures with job training programs or bring some other job to that county. So the governor say, we're gonna close your prison, but we're gonna relocate some other thing there that might provide jobs. Um, some cases, it depends upon churn. Uh, so Pennsylvania has a very high turnover in guards in a way that New York State doesn't. So Pennsylvania is trying to close prisons and their goal is to basically just let attrition take care of the jobs. They just won't rehire, which is easier than, than laying off. Uh, Texas has a completely opposite problem. They actually can't keep guards in prison because the oil boom keeps pulling them out of prisons. Um, so they, they have a whole different story. So it's, it's a very state-by-state state case. But I think the states like New York, where there really isn't much else out there, the politics of our such, you're gonna have to figure out some other alternative to, to provide them. Um, and it, it, I think that drives home the extent to which, you know, prisons do act as kind of a, a, a rural public works program that, you know, we 
you know, it's ironic that conservative politicians tend to be very anti-welfare are also pro-prisons and that pro-prisons are for a public works program. And most solutions in places like New York seem to sort of acknowledge that and say, we'll bring some other public work program to this county to offset the losses to get get it passed. The fact of the matter is those with the prisons have political power, right? In, in that, like, in New York State tried to have a commission to look into closing, just wanted to create a commission to look into closing prisons. And it died because the senator in charge of the criminal justice committee in the New York State Senate is a senator from Elmira, right? The third biggest prison in New York State, right? And so they, they have the clout that are going to have to acknowledge this public works issue to it, which, you no. Know, I imagine here is not a very popular solution, um, but I, I think it is going to be a political necessity. Okay. Right here, or I don't know. Hi, uh, Brian Alexander with Washington Lee University. Um, some political scientists and I look at the role of interest groups and how they influence uh, policy outcomes and legislators and all this. And uh, uh, your comments about the role of prosecutors uh, and district attorneys is, are in, intriguing and compelling. And um, we know that there is variance in, in the way that they get their jobs. Some are appointed, some are elected. Have you, and I'm intrigued overall about the, maybe the pattern, how, how powerful are, are the DAs? Why uh, are they lobbying? Are they get, giving donations? Is their association very strong? I mean, what, what sort of explains the dynamics of, of, of how DAs are, are, are empowered politically? And is there any variance maybe in, in their behavior among those that are appointed versus those that are elected or I'm just sort of thinking, you know, brainstorming out loud, but what are some of the dynamics that, that might be behind how DAs are, are empowered and, and, and does, is any variance in that uh, uh, correlate with, with different patterns of behavior? Yeah, so in terms of appointment, they're only appointed in four states, Alaska, Delaware, Connecticut, and New Jersey, and in Maine, the AG handles all murder cases. Um, that's it. Everywhere else they're elected at the county level. Yeah. Um, so, so there's only one high population state, New Jersey, that, that has appointed DAs. And they're appointed by the attorney general, who's appointed by the governor. So it's, it's a very centralized system. And, and New Jersey does appear to do some things differently, I think in part because of that, that system. But yeah, DAs lobby. They lobby hard and they lobby effectively. Um, Pennsylvania is trying to bring back some mandatory minimums. The state Supreme Court booted out a couple years ago. Um, a majority of Pennsylvanians are opposed to the mandatory minimums, including a plurality of the most conservative voters. It's like 48, 42 against amongst the most conservative. Um, get it easily passed in the House, and it looks poised, poised away in the Senate, most because it's, it's, the, the, the prosecutors want it. Um, Louisiana just is in the process of trying to pass a giant reform bill, and the single most vociferous opponents are the, are the DAs, and they seem to be in the process of completely re rewriting the law in an effort to appeal to the DAs. They're hugely powerful. I don't think it's donations. Um, I think a lot of legislators themselves probably were former prosecutors themselves. There's, there's, there's an affinity connection there. Um, also, you know, they have the benefit of the scaremongering tactic, right? You know, Louis, Virginia is thinking about an idea of allowing geriatric, expanding the options for geriatric release for those who are over 65 and have spent at least five years in prison. And the, the DA that the USA Today quoted yesterday when they wrote about this immediately said, I just think about all the 60-year-olds I've prosecuted for child molestation, right? I mean... How many of you prosecuted? Like, what fraction of your cases? No, no. I just think about all those ones. And, of course, it's a twofer, general fear-mongering plus child molestation, right? It's, it, and so they can do that, right? They can always pull that one case, that one thing to scare people. And, you know, trust me, and I think, we, we've, I think the rise in crime made them very powerful political figures. And I think they, they have a lot of political capital that they expend. Um, and, the, and the opposition is kind of disorganized. Um, and, and, again, you know, for toughness, toughness will always win the politics because toughness can say, look, there's Willie Horton, 
And there is this woman he attacked. Here's her name. There's her family. There's the harm. We could have prevented this. You didn't, right? How do I show he's too tough? Well, I take my little regression model, right? And so then column 16, right? Risk pool A is clearly being over-incarcerated compared to what we need. We don't know which of these people in risk pool A are our opponent. But table 16 clearly, he's just look at her, right? And my table 16 can never defeat her. Right? And so there's a profound political asymmetry that gives them huge amounts, I think, of clout, far beyond like any sort of amount of money or anything that, that they're providing. But there's evidence statewide, that, that, that nationwide, that in various states, that these organizations are very powerful at, at fighting reforms, and they get very little attention, I think. But unfortunately, in terms of testing it, you know, people ask me, do, for prosecutors, do we have data on? I just, I just stop them right there, because right? the answer is going to be no. Right? I, don't know, I don't care what data you want to know about prosecutors. Do we have data on? Nope. No, we, we just don't. Whatever, whatever comes next, we're not going to have it. So actually testing is a much harder thing to do because as it stands right now, we just can't figure out how they do, what they do, or why they do it. Unfortunately, that has to be our last question. We are out of time, but please thank the panelists for a great presentation on both sides.